When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast jamesbondaz.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondaz, and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where M is for Moonraker, the 11th James Bond film starring Roger Moore in his fourth outing as 007. It was released in 1979. My name is Tom Butler and appearing alongside me with the tedious inevitability of an unloved season is Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. (laughs) And floating in a most peculiar way, ground control to Major Tom. Can you hear me, Major Tom? It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hmm, interesting. (laughs) Now... Very interesting. <laughs> Moonraker is uh, it's, it's quite a lot of a movie. Um, after the success of Spy Who Loved Me, the cubby felt emboldened to throw everything at the 11th James Bond film, including mm. space shuttles. It marks a few departures from the Bond film. So it's the last film to involve Bernard Lee. The last ones to involve Ken Adam and Shirley Bassey. But the first and thankfully last to send 007 into space. So, the synopsis, according to MGM, is Roger Moore returns for his fourth stint as the suave super agent James Bond and blasts into orbit in this pulse-pounding adventure that takes 007 from Venice to Rio and to outer space. When Bond investigates the hijacking of an American space shuttle, he and beautiful NASA scientist Holly Goodhead are soon locked in a a life-or-death struggle against Hugo Drax, a power-mad industrialist whose horrific scheme may destroy all human life on Earth. There we go. Very nice. Did I give it enough drama? Too much. Well, you gave it the right amount of drama for Moonraker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd, if you'd done, that, done that for uh, From Russia of Love, I would have told you to calm down. <laughs> um, it was uh, nearly, though, uh, interesting to learn, uh, one of the very first Bond films to be made. Brendan, tell us more. Yeah. Yeah. What, what could have been? Because uh, Ian Fleming, he actually wrote, and it was the only screen treatment he wrote uh, in 1956. Moonraker. It was only discovered in 2015 that it was actually still kicking around because it got it went to auction and got bought by a private bidder. So yeah, the this it's been sort of unearthed and uh, the guard there's a good Guardian article on it as well from from the time when it was discovered that it was still kicking around. And Lewis Gilbert actually he he read it 
he said it was fascinating, too too descriptive, uh, probably due to the fact that Ian Fleming wasn't a screenwriter, and 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 we know his style was very, you know, doubling down on description and being very Detail, detailed. Yeah. yeah. So it was 150 pages long, and a normal Bond film is about 100 pages. So as you can see, he's really going to town on that. But apparently, Lewis Gilbert said it read very well. So Ian Fleming biographer Andrew Lysett, he said um, in 1954, he corresponded with producer Alex Corder, who had read a proof of his second novel, Live and Let Die, and had praised it. Fleming wrote to him about his third novel, which was still to be written, which was Moonraker. He said it was an expansion of a film story I've had in my mind since the war. This was a straight thriller with a particularly English but also general appeal, allowing for some wonderful film settings. So as we know, Ian Fleming was really keen to get the character of Bond on film and he tried for a a while up until 1962 when he finally managed it. It was very different to the the film that we did get titled Moonraker, completely different. M is not in it, not not the M that we know. Um, the head of British intelligence is is just like a normal city guy that's sort of gruff. There's no Miss Moneypenny. Uh, there's another, there's an extra character called Tosh. Uh, he's a special officer who works undercover to help take on Drax. John Gilbert, who is an expert in Fleming, said, this is the very first screenplay written by Fleming, imagining Bond for the big screen. It's his only attempt at a film script, so it's hugely important. It's very Bondian scenario, a megalomaniac who wants to see the downfall of Britain. The rank organisation, who were at the time, they were massive, they were the biggest film company in the UK, they didn't see any potential in it and didn't, decided not to go press ahead with it. So yeah, but it, it remained on their records. So yeah, now now it's sort of... That's that's what could have been. He, he then went on to Jamaica and wrote the rest of the novels. So, so he turned the script into a into the book. So into it, the book, yeah, yeah. The following year, yeah. Mm. So and what 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 we could have had? What we could have had, and that's a very mm. English set story. I think it's the only Bond book that just stays in the UK. Yeah, um, which um, considering what we got from the film, <laughs> not not being shot in England at all, it's pretty incredible, really. Mm. It is. Well, the story of. Moonraker getting made doesn't um, isn't as simple as just going straight to the new script because after The Spy Who Loved Me, anybody who saw that film would have seen at the end of it that it said that James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only at the end of the film. But as we all know, he didn't return in For Your Eyes Only. He actually returned in Moonraker. And the reason for that was that Cubby Broccoli being the ever trend following um producer that he was saw the success of these uh, of star wars so they decided to look at moonraker as a basis for the next film instead the novel but if you've ever read moonraker it doesn't really very, not very close at all to the book um so they postponed view eyes only and started work on moonraker so yeah, the original novel, uh, which was written in 1955, is about a German industrialist who wants to wipe London uh, off the map uh, with a rocket. Um, so they decided not to go to that, and obviously they went for the very heavily space-orientated Moonraker to follow in the footsteps of Star Wars. It, and oh, the other thing about it is as well is that it follows quite a. It's a bit of a debated topic, but 
I think most people who've seen it will probably agree that it follows a very similar storyline to the successful Spy Who Loved Me that came before it, with having a megalomaniac that wants to kill everyone and start a new world. Uh, so yeah, so we we could have had Fury Eyes only after Spy Love Me, but um, we didn't. We had Moonraker. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in nineteen seventy nine, I mean, due to the success of Star Wars and various other factors, there was a huge sci fi boom in the, throughout the cinema. Throughout cinema, um, in seventy nine, you saw the release of Star Trek: The Motion Picture as well as Alien, which both out- outgrossed Moonraker at the box office, and we'll come to that a bit later. But other sci-fi films in the box office that year included The Black Hole and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. And also at the time, production was starting to begin on Empire Strikes Back, the sequel to uh, to Star Wars. The highest grossing film of 1979 was Kramer vs. Kramer, and that was followed by the Amateurville Horror and Rocky II. Uh, but it was also the year of Apocalypse Now and The Jerk. Um, and Deer Hunter had been the big winner at the Oscars that year, winning five years, five Oscars, including Best Picture. But interestingly, um, in the world of cinema, uh, another interesting event happened around this time. So both Steven Spielberg and um, George Lucas had just enjoyed big hits. So um, Spielberg with Close Encounters and George Lucas with Star Wars. And while they were getting away together to escape the sort of the the hubbub around star wars they were in hawaii together and um it was then that spielberg was talking uh, uh had expressed an interest in directing a, a james bond film he had been lined up perhaps to do uh for your eyes only but that never happened but lucas instead pitched him the idea of a character who could be like 007 who could sustain a number of different adventure films and that turned out to be indiana jones so it was all within this ether um, that that uh, idea was born as well, so I thought it was quite interesting. Um, so yeah, that was general. That was like cinema in 1979. It was a very very exciting time. Um, I, t- I tell you, it's a good it's a good thing that the producers now don't follow that mentality of this film was successful. Let's do something similar because nowadays Daniel Craig would have been would he have had superpowers, wouldn't he? They'd have jumped on that. <laughs> mentality probably will do in the next uh, when, when uh, Bond comes back they kind of did lean into the, the marvelization of it didn't they with their little team they got going on yes yep. yeah, yeah and some of the sci- sci-fi type aspects of No Time to Die you know that does does yeah. lean into it a little bit it's just a little bit more restrained nowadays mm. uh, than it was. he'll come back with a cape next time <laughs> <laughs> um so that was the, I mean, the, the other big thing to mention um and sound the klaxon is obviously the tax situation in the UK here we go. Um, now we're talking. Roger, Back to business. Roger Moore had gone into tax, hell, tax exile, as had Cubby Broccoli, and as did Moonraker, um, the Bond film itself, and we'll come on to that in a minute. And John but, Barry as well? Uh, and John Barry as well, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So they knew that the film was going to be have some involvement in space um, from quite early on, um, and that led them to some interesting places. Yeah, so they thought they would go and visit NASA. Um, so they went on pretty early on in the, the pre-production. And they went to see the new space shuttle, which was a, a spacecraft capable of launching and re-entering the Earth's atmosphere rather than on Earth itself. So yeah, the, the producers had lots of cooperation with NASA and NASA were very you know, 
giving with their their sort of knowledge. They went to the Johnson Space Center and the Ames Research Center in California. Um, we don't get any NASA uh, official NASA facilities appearing in the film, but there were some exterior scenes at a hangar facility in Palmdale. So, yeah, as as we know at the beginning of the film, we see a, a shuttle being he- carried on the back of a seven four seven jet. So Kobe Broccoli said that the production received valuable help and advice regarding uh, sort of what how they could portray that. And Ken Adam actually said, I went to NASA and they showed me their latest design. It was a series of cylinders bolted together with solar panels. I particularly liked the idea of the cylinders and decided to have the space station look like a mobile. Each arm, each cylinder had a different length and it started rotating. You kept getting a different look depending on the angle. Ken Adam... He every time he talks about this, you see in all the interviews, he was very keen on making this as space fact rather than space fiction. Um, sorry, the science fact, isn't it? Space, <laughs> space fact, uh, space fact. <laughs> yeah, any any interviews with Ken Adam regarding this, he he says he was very keen on making sure it was science fact rather than science fiction. Um, so he really lent into what what he learned at NASA, and you know that that. That might be one of the redeeming features of the film. That was one of the big mantras, wasn't it? You see Cubby doing interviews on set and he always talks about science fact rather than science fiction. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So according to Brendan, Moonraker, great space fact. Great space. It's so factual about space. Um, mm-hmm. They all actually, having watched the, the, the documentary, they said that they wanted to launch the film at the same time as the shuttle being launched for the first time. That's right, yeah, but it was delayed by two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that didn't work out. Um, oh, so, it, so it ended up being science fiction after all. <laughs> that would have been a bit sad, wouldn't it? But it was the first time that the space shuttle was shown on on screen. So, mm. Mm, very exciting. Yeah. So, just a bit about the director. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about this because we've done a bit on Gilbert before, and to be honest, there's not much to say about this. Lewis Gilbert directed the film. Um, he had previously done You Only Live Twice and Spy Who Loved Me. Essentially, the only thing I can find that really drove the decision to bring him back is that they were trying to replicate the success of the spy who loved me so moonraker they brought him back it was going to be a fantasy led film although it did have some space fact in it um it's a very uh, fantastical film gilbert's your man if you want fantasy he'd done two of the biggest fantasy sort of star ones previously i suppose spy who loved me isn't really that fancy is it well i think it i mean it's got that it's grandiose isn't it it's I got mean, an, anything with jaws in it surely and also, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. There's, there's probably a bit of an argument for saying that there's there's a balance in, in spite of me, but it is quite a, a big sort of exciting um, experience as opposed to some of the other ones. Um, but yeah, so they brought him back for Moonraker. Um, but, uh, and probably mention this later, but he doesn't come back for Four Your Eyes Only because obviously they wanted to go for something a lot more uh, close to reality than what uh, Moonraker was and Gilbert wasn't the man for that. So let's talk about the script. Uh, writing the script, they very soon decided that uh, they didn't want to follow the plot of the book. Um, I think Cubby felt that the idea of the book, which was that a, a space rocket that was going to be um, diverted to crash into London um, was just too pedestrian. He felt like that was just wasn't going to cut it for, for, for James Bond. He felt that, uh, yeah, that idea was obsolete. And so... Um, 
Tom Mankiewicz, who had done the rewrite on The Spy Who Loved Me and had written um, Live and Let Die and uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, he was briefly involved with writing a script for Moonraker and he wrote six to ten pages for a treatment and that sort of revolved around the capture of a space shuttle. It wasn't really set in space, uh, just around a space shuttle. And the first draft had um, scenes in the Himalayas and they were looking at um, shooting in Nepal and Kashmir. In fact, they did take a trip to India uh, for scouting, um, but they realised that there wasn't going to be enough time to prepare to shoot in India. And therefore, that was punted back to, to Octopussy down the line. So while they were writing, while Mankiewicz was writing his treatment, um, they made the decision to change it for, for, for Your Eyes Only to Moonrake. And he literally just changed the name on the front of the script. So it didn't have like a huge tie to, to what the film was called. And then after Mank- Mankiewicz had done his, his drafts, uh, Christopher Wood was then brought back on board. He had been the writer on The Spy Love Me. Um, and he was brought on to bring the final script. And he, he just received sole writing credit on it. Um, so some of the things uh, that he wrote in the script that didn't make it in was a, a scene with a jump jet and also a motorbike chase in Venice. That was changed to what we got, the gondola chase. Uh, again, because Pe- Cubby thought that motorbikes were a bit too pedestrian for Bond. There was also a scene with a jetpack, so that would have been uh, interesting. Um, obviously decided it was a bit too crazy for Moonraker to include a jetpack, so obviously had their limits at some point. <laughs> the script also had a scene at the Eiffel Tower and a scene with uh, James Bond and Holly Goodhead being being dragged behind Drax's yacht, um, and also an Acrostar ju- uh, jet sequence, and all of those didn't make it in, but returned uh, Eiffel Tower in a view to a kill, and then the boat in Furies only, and then the Acrostar jet sequence in Octopussy. Um, Thank goodness they didn't add in more more bits. I don't know how they could have fit more more stuff in. Yeah. Um, anyway, if they'd have jetpacked, he would have jetpacked straight to the moon, wouldn't they? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we've gone. Yeah. (laughs) With George chasing him. Um, So there was some script editing, and that was done by Lewis Gilbert's collaborator, Vernon Harris, um, who had also worked on The Spy Love Me. And Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet were hired to jazz up some of the dialogue, and they would later... That would be the last Bond film they worked on until they returned and did Never Say Never Again in 83. But the final screenplay, which they finished up, was dated 19th of May, 1978. Yeah, so then we've got uh, the crew um, piecing them together. So we've got editing the film and on second unit, we've got John Glenn. And of course, this would be his last in that role until he moved up to director. And then we've got the production design by Ken Adam for his final Bond film. Visual effects art director Peter Lamont. The models uh, by Derek Meddings and cinematography by Jean Tournier. Now, originally... Uh, it was meant to be Claude Renoir. Yeah, so a few days uh, before they started shooting, Gilbert noticed Renoir was struggling to read. And he's, Renoir said, I've been preparing the picture for three months. And within the last two or three months, I noticed that two or three weeks, I noticed that my vision was deteriorating and impairing my photographic judgment. So they'd taken Claude to South America. They'd done all the recce. Um, and so Cubby wanted to get this fixed. And he arranged for Claude to go and get his eyes fixed by a really top surgeon, um, you know, throwing throwing all, all money at it to get it sort, sorted. But Renoir declined 
um, he, he decided to go back to France um, where he underwent surgery. Cubby said that after this, he promised him, he said, you can do the next Bond film. Unfortunately, he had to retire. Uh, his, his eyesight didn't return to what it was. Um, so then he was asked for a recommendation and he went for fellow Frenchman Jean Tournier. Okay, so I've already mentioned uh, Star Wars. Uh, that's the, that's, that wasn't the last time I'm going to mention it. Um, so before they started work on the film, they obviously were quite taken with Star Wars and the effects and how it looked and its success. So Broccoli actually met with um, George Lucas's uh, team over at Industrial Light and Magic um, to talk about the, doing the effects on Moonraker. Which would have been a nice idea, but um, the, they apparently quoted two million dollars for the work, as well as a two percent cut of the film's profits. Wow! Obviously, Cubby's not very keen on <laughs> spending a lot of money on some uh, on certain things, um, especially considering that the budget on this film got pretty big. So um, they decided to shoot the effects in house themselves, um, and they did that between Paris uh, and the 007 stage, um, and they. So there's not much more to that apart from yeah they did it all in house with Derek Meddings um, had to use some quite novel techniques in order to do it um, because they didn't obviously have the technologies available that Industrial Light and Magic had and that they used on Star Wars um, so yeah they used some quite interesting techniques actually it's quite um, they're quite complicated the te- techniques they used in order to do them and make it look like the spaceships and stuff are actually real they ended up sort of relaying the same shots over and over each other to make it look smooth like the spaceships were moving um through space as opposed to something just you know like a thunderbirds thing or something like that which isn't realistic so they came up with some quite novel new techniques to get around the the fact that they couldn't use industrial light and magic um but interestingly meddings actually got an academy award nomination for best visual effects um for the work he'd done on this despite them not using industrial light and magic so big kudos to meddings for that Indi- space fact space fact um right so uh, roger was um had, had gone on to a a new deal with 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 james bond because um his his three movie deal had ended with spy who loved me so he went on a, onto a film by film deal this had um this we've discussed at length before um but after some discussions and negotiations through his agent he he signed on to make the movie uh, in january 1978 uh, and he took an apartment in Paris with his family to make the movie. And we'll talk about in a minute why they shot him in France. But he loved the French way of working. He said that we'd start around noon, shoot for seven or eight hours and then go home. Um, so he enjoyed not having to do the early mornings. And that's something that crops up quite a lot when people talk about Moonraker and shooting in France. Um, but in his book, he talks about missing his home comforts. And said that stunt arranger Bob Simmons would bring in bowls of beef dripping, beef dripping from home. Ugh. Lovely stuff. Space fact. <laughs> that's, that's not a space fact. <laughs> he he reportedly got paid four million dollars for appearing in Moonraker. That's after he got paid a million dollars to appear in the first three James Bond films. So he had driven a really hard bargain to return in Moonraker but I guess with the success of Spy Who Loved Me he was emboldened to make that call so um, so they did work him hard for his four million dollars though um, it was an eight month shoot and he called it back breaking work he said he only had three days off uh, uh, and his quote was if you worked a horse like that you'd be in trouble he also complained that there were so many journalists visiting who would have to excuse himself to go and shoot a scene yeah but Someone you else... wouldn't pay a horse four million dollars would you 
No. <laughs> Four million carrots, space fat. <laughs> um, Richard Keel also returned as Jaws. Uh, he was originally meant to die in The Spy Love Me, but um, they shot a open-ended uh, ending for him in order for him to return. Apparently it was Bob Simmons, the stunt arranger, whose idea it was to do that. Um so if you remember, he, he fights a shark at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, and that should have been the end of him. The shark should have killed him, but uh, he, he kills the shark instead. Talking about it later, Richard Keel said, Bob seemed to see the potential of the character before it was as obvious to the rest of the rest of the crew. And Cubby said it was fan demand that drove his return. We had thousands of letters from youngsters who asked us to please bring Jaws back. Um, we talked about Jaws in the letter J, um, and so I won't sort of repeat too much of that, but he wasn't as happy with the script for his return in Moonraker. He didn't like the idea of him having a girlfriend. Um, also, Christopher Wood wasn't a fan of Jaws coming back either, and he didn't include him in the in the novelisation. That's what that's how much he didn't like the character. But um, it was apparently, um, obviously, one of the big uh, controversies about Jaws returning in Moonraker is that he turns into a good guy in this one. And Richard Keel said this came about because the director, Lewis Gilbert's grandson, had said, Grandpa, I like Jaws. Why does he have to be a bad guy? Uh, and I believe that, like the director's grandson, a lot of fans like Jaws and the director and the producer had realised this and wanted to take advantage of that fact. And um, talking about working with Roger, Richard said Roger has a heart bigger than his ego. And, him, and this was important if Jaws was going to be entertaining. Some stars would have objected to what Jaws was doing as they would consider it scene stealing. Roger was too much of a team player to care whether Jaws was being entertaining in a scene. So, um, yeah, they're the two sort of cast uh, returning, but also you've got the uh, usual suspects back as well. The big hitters, Bernard Lee, for all his final performances, M. See previous episode, is it the previous or previous two, uh, where we did a whole episode on M. Um, and talked about his uh, final outing and why he didn't return. Um, but he was quite ill at the time, so this ended up being his last. But he was there with Geoffrey Keane, who was back as Minister of Defence, and um, apparently those two worked, but they got on really well. They're just chattering and nattering throughout the, their time because they got to do slightly more than... Uh, they they had in the past because they got to go on location this time. Desmond Llewellyn is back as Q. Again, it's good because they this team they got to go on location in Italy, so they got they got to actually do stuff. Uh, Lois Maxwell, as well as Miss Moneypenny, and uh, also she said about this production. Cubby very kindly gave my daughter a part as an extra. They were filming in Paris, and he looked after her as part of his own family. He used to take her home, cook spaghetti. There weren't many other extras staying with producers and his wife. Um, so that is a, a measure of Cubby, and there are many more stories like that. He loves to cook spaghetti. That's uh, something that, that crops up. W- Walter Gotel is back as General Gogol. Just, it's very brief, isn't it? Very it's, brief. It's, it, yeah, and he's wearing pyjamas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's in his bedroom, and, and basically he agrees to d- delay any military action. And, and that's really it. It's it's brief, but it's uh, it's a continuation of the, of the character that we see throughout into the eighties as well. And then we've got some new cast. Yeah, so the biggest name on the new cast is probably Michael Lonsdale. He plays Drax. Now Michael Lonsdale is a funny one because he's quite a well revered actor, but I don't think he's one that 
is really passed into the mainstream. I don't think many people know that much about him. He was fairly big in the the seventies and eighties. He was in the he played Detective Claude Lebel in the Day of the Jackal. He was in the Name of the Rose, and he was in the Remains of the Day. So some big big films around that era. Um, so he was brought on as Hugo Drax, who is a interesting villain for Bond. He's slightly over the top cartoonish villain um very much in the guise of the uh, previous stromberg in spy who love me um megalomaniac who basically just wants to take over the world um and interestingly he wasn't the first choice uh, apparently james mason was the, was the first choice to, mm. to play hugo drax which i think probably would have been slightly better uh he's definitely a more believable as a really evil uh, man James Mason's obviously played baddies in things like North by Northwest and, and stuff like that so uh, I think that would have been an interesting choice um, he's, he's got quite a lot of range as the baddie in um, Moonraker he sort of has a lot of scenes with Bond where I think they're trying to replicate previous successes from films there's the scene with the shooting the pheasant the pheasant hunting mm. where which is probably one of the most interesting scenes which I think is sort of a, a copy or a homage to the Goldfinger scene. It's the country it's, club type vibe, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, yeah, well, it's mano on mano, isn't it? Two two people just doing something mundane, but there's an undertone to it that, you know, they're actually testing each other to, to see who's got the, you know, who dares to push the other one too far. Um, it doesn't work as well as the Goldfinger one. I think it's a bit oversimplified. Obviously, he um, shoots an assassin out of the tree and... Yeah, after after um, he's saying Drax saying you've missed Mister Bond, and he says did I, <laughs> um, which is classic Roger style. Obviously, you can't imagine Sean doing that. Um, but he does get quite dark as well because later on he, he's got his Dobermans and he sends them after the um, uh, the the pilot, his personal pilot in the woods, which is quite a quite a strange scene for uh, Moonraker. I think you've got this sort of upbeat sort of panto film, and then they throw in this bit of a darkened scene. There's a similar one in Octopussy as well, I think, in the woods. Um, but yeah, overall, I think he's a he's quite a good villain. He's a little bit one-dimensional, um, but it kind of pulls it off. He's I got some the, good um, lines. What's that? He's got some good lines. Yeah. He's got some good lines, yeah. Get some good dialogue. Uh, I read that as well, that they had to cast a French actor because of the co-production laws. No. So to be cast as a French production, they had to have a French actor in a in a major role, and so that's why it ended up being Michael Lonsdale. But uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. He was also brought back in uh, the 007 Legends video game as well. So we got another pop at the uh, the uh, Bond Apple. acting cherry. <laughs> um, okay, so then he also has his henchman Chang. Played by Toshiro uh, Suga. I think I went into a lot of depth when when we talked about uh, Toshiro Suga before. Uh, I'm not going to go into that much depth now. Just skip uh, over it. Come on. Yeah, Let's move Ch- on. Chang, Chang's essentially like a sort of martial artist that works for him. He's got a moustache, got a weird sort of bowl haircut. He uh, doesn't really have any defining characteristics. Obviously, you've got Jaws in there who sort of takes up that role. But yeah, Chang's just like, meant to be all right at martial arts um but i'll I'll just quickly reiterate the story that i told before because it's quite interesting one he's not really an actor he was he had a brief career in cinema um, but michael g wilson uh he was really into uh aikido 
and when they got, when the production was moved over to France, he uh, the person that trained him um, to, uh, told him that there was a guy in France who could help train continue his training of Akidu when he went over to France, and that was Chang uh, Toshiro Suga. So that's how he got the part in the film because he was a specialist in this Aikido that Michael G. Wilson um, studied. So yeah, he, he took part in the film. Uh, there's some interesting. St- Go back to the episode about that because if you re- if you're desperate to find out, about yeah, there's Chang, hours. There's hours on him. There's hours on it. Um, <laughs> but there are some interesting stories, and he's, he seems like quite a nice man uh, talking about his his little dabbling in the world of his film. But yeah, he's a, he's a pretty prolific um, or a tr- like trainer in the world of Aikido. So there you go. That's the two main baddies. Right, Bond Girls. I mean, it's quite a light film for Bond Girls, to be honest. Um, you've got obviously got Lois Charles as Dr. Goodhead. Lois had been, she's a Texan actor, and she had been considered for The Spy Who Loved Me, but had turned it down. And she, in a weird coincidence, ended up being sat next to Lewis Gilbert on a flight. Um, they were sat right next to each other. He started chatting with her, telling her about this film that he was working on. Um, and it turned out to be Moonraker. And Cubby had been uh, thinking about her as a... She she was a real rising star at the time. And he had been thought think, thinking about her for Bond Girl. So it kind of was a huge coincidence. And it sort of came together quite nicely. So um, she had started her career as a, as a model. Um, and But like I said, she'd got really, really popular... And was like the hot thing in Hollywood had been in The Way We Were with Robert Redford and The Great Gatsby. And she had also just appeared in the Agatha Christie's Death and the Nile with uh, Peter Ustinoff. Um, she, um, yeah, she, talking about playing Holly Goodhead, obviously, it's, uh, and talking about the name. She said, I try to take it all very lightly. Holly Goodhead. I mean, it's funny, right? Despite the name, this Bond girl is a departure from the tradition from the tradition. She's a strong, intelligent woman and a CIA agent in her own right. So Bond has to take her seriously. I wouldn't have taken the role if she had been the typical Bond girl. And that's what they all say. Um, Copy and paste. Yeah. Um, She gave up acting after a little while after the movie, uh, after her younger brother died. And after three years out of acting, her career never really hit the peaks as, um, as it had done at that. But she did appear in a number of things including Broadcast News, Creepshow 2. She was in Dallas for a bit. She appeared in Speed 2 and she had an uncredited cameo in Austin Powers. So there's a fun one for you. Mm. Corinne, Corinne well, Clary. Isn't she uh, just sorry, just uh, isn't she in the um, Bond Girls Are Forever documentary as well? Quite she heavily. She probably is, yeah. She, has, yeah. she does talk about Bond quite a lot. So, um, yeah. yeah. You've got Corinne Clary. An Italian actor. She plays Drax's personal pilot, Corinne Dufour. She's the one that gets the dog set on her. She had been written as a sassy and slightly dis- ditzy Southern Californian Valley girl called Trudy Parker. But that was changed mm. to a French uh, Italian actress due to the production moving to Europe. Um, so if you read the book, it, the character is still Trudy Parker. But um, yeah, in the film, Corinne Dufour. And she was a big Italian star done loads of Italian films and had also has also been in the Italian Big Brother. So there's a space fact for you. Mm, um, that's not a space fact. Dolly, uh, obviously, is the sort of rem- rounds out the remainder of the female cast. And we did a whole thing on Dolly and Dolly's braces, um, played by Blanche. Let's not cover that again. <laughs> Goodness, can't handle the emails. Blanche. No, but I, I watched it the other day and I was still shocked that she doesn't wear braces. <laughs> 
So yeah, see our episode D for for that on Blanche Rovalek and how she got the role in Moonraker. It's quite an interesting story if you revisit that one. But let's dive into production because there's a lot to get through. Time for some tax talk. Filming for this, it took place in uh, Europe and also South America um, so that none of the cast or the producers would set foot in Britain at any point. And that's because at the time it was being shot, the income tax rate had risen to 83% on earned income and 98% on investment income. And we talked about this in the Roger Moore episode and we've talked about tax in almost every episode. Um, it's what the what listeners want. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the story, very British story, the novel, and it just taxed it completely out of Britain. So, yeah, it, it, it pushed Moonraker out out to France. Um, they relocated, used the studios in Paris at Studio d'Epinay and Boulogne-Billancourt. Um, and they basically took all the, took over all the sound stages, pretty much similar to what they did when they uh, shot Licence to Kill, when they went to Chiribusco and just used all the sound stages. The sets that were designed by Ken Adam, they were the largest ever constructed in France. And it took more than 222,000 man-hours to construct. So it's about 1,000 hours each member of crew. Um, which Ken Adam, he talks about struggling with the the French way of working. Because he absolutely point-blank remo- uh, refused to work weekends. Uh, and he said, but we'll, we'll need to work weekends because, you know, we won't get it done if you don't. You know, nope. I mean, there's no point. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not even going to ask my men to do that. And so he he was like, well, okay, well, I'll show you my plans. And we've seen Ken Adams' fantastic drawings and, and his concepts. And that's what won them over. And um, they they worked weekends. They worked long hours on Saturdays and Sundays. And even brought their families at weekends to come and see it. They were so excited by the plans. You know, so he, he won them over. And uh, in in the end, working in France, you know, didn't really have a negative effect as they they got it done. The, uh, amazingly, the sets uh, for Money Penny and M's office were broken down and stored at Pinewood at the end of every film. So for Moonraker, they flat packed them and they moved them to Paris. Amazing, um, the, the whole things. Yeah, should have put it in a submarine. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's jump into the start of the film, the the big pre-title sequence, the skydive. So this scene is a pretty impressive scene. It's uh, took apparently weeks of planning and preparation to put it all together, and it it sounds like an absolute nightmare pulling the whole thing um, on put it on the whole thing on screen. So it's co- coordinated by uh, Don Calvet, uh, working with John Glenn and in, in the second unit. Uh, and it was fil- it was shot above Lake Berryessa in nor- Northern California. So Calvet was a, a worked with a skydiving champion called BJ BJ Worth, which I think we've spoken to spoken about before. Yeah, if you took um, did the uh, Eiffel Tower, didn't they? Yeah, um, and he they developed the actual equipment that they used for the scene, so they didn't use standard equipment for it. Um, the biggest 
thing that they created was a one-inch thick parachute pack, uh, so it could be concealed under a suit. Uh, so obviously, because it looks like they're going out for, without, uh, well, Roger looks like he's going out without a parachute on, doesn't he? So they had to conceal it underneath him, so they so it looked like he didn't have one. Um, and they had to also create some equipment as well that um, stopped the cameraman from suffering whiplash while op- uh, while opening his parachute because he obviously had all the film equipment on his head as well, which I'll talk about in a bit. Um, so they brought a stuntman in called Jake Lombard to test it all out, uh, and he eventually played Roger in, in the in the scene. And um, Worth was the pilot uh, who, who who Bond takes the, the parachute from. And then a chap called Ron Luginbill. Lugin Bill uh, played George, um, and yeah, so Worth and Lombard both become became quite uh, important members of the stunt team for later Bond films. So when they um, did this scene, they had to set up these Velcro custom um, sort of fabric bits on them so they could be hidden every time because they had to do it so many times. They actually did eighty eight dives in total, so it became a bit of a efficiency drive to actually find a way to do this without constantly having to redo everything every single time um interestingly they there was no film equipment that could do this film equipment back then was massive so there's no way of like having a carrying a film camera with you while you're trying to do this shoot so they used a a lightweight panavision um uh, plastic uh, it's like an anamorphic lens and they got it from an old pawn shop in in paris so they had to adapt it and they attached it to his helmet to shoot the whole sequence but it also had to hold a lot of film as well. So even though it was lightweight, it was probably still quite heavy, which is why the they had to have this special way of not letting the um, uh, cameraman get whiplash when he was opening his parachute. Um, and I also read that they had to do this thing where they sort of tied rope or like string around the parachute so that it took longer to open because if it opened at the normal speed of a parachute, it would have shot him back too, too quickly and he would have got whiplash or really hurt himself. So they had to like tie this string around it so that it unraveled slower. It looks ridiculous, but it took like two to three seconds longer than a normal parachute to open, so that he, he didn't hurt himself. So yeah, it took eighty-eight um, different uh, scenes to uh, shots to do that uh, drops. Um, and then the only sh- scenes with Roger and Moore all sh- were close-ups done in the studio, so they were nowhere near it. There you go. Yeah, it's quite an amazing sequence, really, but that is undercut by a stupid ending, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's one of those ones where nowadays when you watch it, it doesn't seem that exciting. Back then, it was probably absolutely fantastic because nobody did anything like it before. I mean, we've so, seen so many parachute scenes in films since then. It's sort of you're sort of dull to it, aren't you? But yeah, yeah. Back at that, back then, it must have been phenomenal to see that because nobody knew how to do it back then. I mean, they had built equipment to do it that mm. nobody created before. I think I read Not that like nowadays, you stick a GoPro on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I read that John Glenn. Um storyboarded it so and they could get three seconds of film each time so it was each mm. bit with all they had to get was three seconds yeah. per jump but it is i mean it is i think it'd be amazing on the big screen perhaps like you say yeah. lost now a well, little bit you, if only for that it. fantastic circus bit at the end which is just fantastic <laughs> beautiful very clever scene <laughs> um, all that effort gone in 88 drops to finish with that Cheers. Well, I think there was a longer version where um, uh, there was more of Jaws landing in the circus and how there was like some sort of net, but it all just gets lost, doesn't it? Because it cuts to the the titles instead. Um, it's just in in the Spy Love Me, they sort of he was meant to be scary, and he does it for the majority of the film. In this film, they're instantly setting him up to be a ridiculous character. He's just that flapping just, arms, yeah. Just doesn't work. It's just unnecessary. Um, 
Let's talk about something that was necessary, and that is the centrifuge se- sequence, which I think is one of the best bits of the film. Um, mm. uh, yeah. And it obviously owes a great deal to the traction table scene in Thunderball. It's basically an extended version of that, isn't it? So he, Bond gets strapped into a machine. The machine goes haywire due to some sabotage, and then he has to get his own way, uh, escape from it. Um, so... It happens at Holly Goodhead's office, and this was filmed at the Centre Georges Pompidou, which I think is in Paris. And it was um, NASA actually has one of the centrifuges, um, and I believe it's at the Ames Research Centre, which I think you mentioned that they went to beforehand. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So perhaps they would have seen that. Yeah, so that's mm. perhaps where they lifted the idea from. But um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was um, the the centrifuge was designed by Ken Adam and built life size so that you could put see Roger climbing into it and it would spin round. But it was also um built in miniature too. Um but this is a quote from Ken Adam. He said, I found some brilliant people in Paris. I found a little mechanic who built the rotating centrifuge that I designed. Derek Meddings was furious with me. He always stood behind me when I did the design and said, I could do that as a model. But this time I said, I know. But wouldn't it be fantastic if we had it full size with Roger inside? We had quite a battle. The little mechanic built it full size and it worked beautifully. But it couldn't reach the speed required. So Derek had to build a model after all. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, it's one of those shiny um, sort of chrome designs that Ken Adam just does to a T. It looks like it could be kind of real, but also fantastical as well. Yeah, mm. it's kind of, It's kind of a... Around that era, that's a pretty cool thing to see, isn't it? Because you wouldn't have known that's how people prepared for flying planes and going into space. So, it, as I say, nowadays it's not sort of good. Um, do, did did you find that how they shot the um, you know uh, Rogers skin? Yes. So yeah. they had um, yeah to make the effect of the gravity on Roger, they had a big high fow- high powered fan very close to his face, just blowing his face. Um, and apparently it really bruised his face the amount of times he had to shoot it. But uh, yeah, I'm is not that surprised. What it really is, really is going going full pelt, isn't it? Yeah. Good job they didn't do that in View to a Kill. Yeah, his wig would have blown off. Um, yeah, I, I, it's in the uh, the making of, isn't it? John Glenn mentions that you know, Roger had part control of it as well, where to aim the... Right, aim right. Um, but that's something that stuck with me as a kid watching that. Like, that's yeah. the one thing that jumps out of, about this film. It's one of those, mm. it's in the Greatest greatest Hits compl- mm. compilation, isn't it, that scene? Yeah. Definitely. So, on to Drax's estate. Yeah, his his mansion, which is set in California, it was actually filmed at Chateau de Vaux de Vicomte, uh, which is southeast of Paris, about 40 miles. Now, I, w- I, I started to go down a rabbit hole on this. And to find steer out, clear. steer clear. I'm just going to sort of dip my toe in the rabbit hole. But it was originally built for Nicolas uh, Fouquet, who was the the finance minister of Louis the Fourteenth. Um, so Fouquet was like really grand and would put soirees on, and it was just flaunting his cash. And uh, the king got jealous, and very Bond villain style. He had him thrown into prison until his death, oh. um, and then used that as inspiration to build build uh, Versailles. It was it was like the blueprint for those sort of uh, should have used that in a script. Those sort of buildings, <laughs> yeah, they should. <laughs> um, and then the interiors were filmed at Chateau de Gaumont. Um So again, France, you know, 
using France there because they've they've got to in exile. Mm. So then back to the action. Uh, Venice. Uh, there's quite a few scenes in Venice. I'm not going to go to talk through all of them. I'm going to focus on the, the action scenes, but they do. Um, they spent a lot of time in Venice, and they spent a lot of money in Venice as well. Um, for essentially, I think they talk. I think it was like. I don't know how much it was. Looking in the millions for like 10 minutes of footage. Um, but there's the glass works that they go to, which is like um, Drax's laboratory thing. Uh, that was filmed in a couple of different places because I believe the glass works had a shop in Venice mainland um, or main, the main island. And then the actual lab was actually somewhere else because they didn't actually make the glass on site. So they filmed in two different locations. Um but the main the main scene there is the the gondola chase, or, 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 or what was named by Roger the Bondola. Very nice. Heard that? Yeah. yeah. First time I'd heard it earlier. I thought it was very clever, Roger. Um, apparently, originally Christopher Wood had planned it to be a motorcycle chase around Venice, around the streets of Venice, which would have been interesting and a little bit more re- realistic. Um, but the the Bondola, so they had a lot of trouble with this. They um, Nobody would sell them a new gondola because everyone's quite proud of gondolas in, in Venice. So they had to get this sort of old broken one that wasn't being used anymore and they had to completely renovate it. And they stuck a 120 horsepower engine on it and they found that it went about 15 miles per hour. Um, and as soon as they set it off, it just sank. So it shot forward and just sank underwater. So that didn't work. So they ended up building four gondolas for it. And I, I think they got up to like 60 miles per hour, I think I heard. Um so yeah, they were just like shooting around the 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 little rivers of the rivers, estuaries, canals, canals. canals. That's it. Yeah, that's that's that sounds more accurate. Um, so yeah, and then uh, it obviously converts into that hovercraft which they they pull together. Um, and Roger talked a little bit about how it looks seamless on the film where it just sort of is in the water and then it turns into a hovercraft and goes land. It didn't happen like that. He says that um, when he did it. Uh, he just fell straight into the water and there were hundreds of um, tourists just stood at the side watching him fall in. <laughs> uh, so it took a few takes to do it because uh, um, it was really unstable. Um, apparently, he also needed to have his suit replaced every time. It was like a silk, really expensive silk suit. So every time that he went in the water, um, they had to take him off, like do his makeup again, put another suit on him and then start all over again. Uh, luckily, the last time, which is the fifth take, he, he was wearing the last silk suit he ha- they had for him and they they got the take um but the other thing as well is that when you see it on land originally when they started to film it they had the police there and the police were saying don't you worry about the people we'll move them out of the way so you film we'll move them out of the way and he said they just said it was impossible like they just couldn't move away these tourists have you have either you been to venice yeah yeah it's crazy so it's impossible trying to film there without like cording an off area mm. is, is madness yeah. um and they just couldn't do it like the the tourists would just stare at them. Like the police couldn't get them out of the way. So apparently, Gilbert just said, "Just drive, just drive through him. Just, just drive through him." And if you watch it on screen, all the tourists jumping out of the way—they're actually jumping out of the way because they're scared of this gondola going down the street. <laughs> they're not like being told to jump out of the way. They don't know it's coming. Quite an interesting uh, scene there. Uh, also in Venice, uh, quite a few of the cast went over as well. So Bernard Lee, Desmond Oylin, Jeffrey Keane. So they went over to film their bits and pieces, but there's a nice story about from uh, Desmond Lane talks about it actually. Uh, he says they all went out for dinner one night. He's he waxes lyrical about Bernard Lee. He absolutely loves the man, and he says um, that 
they went to this restaurant and there was a piano in the entrance. So Bernard Lee went, oh, I'm just going to play this for a bit. So they were like stood watching him and they said, Bernard, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to go for a reservation. It's, it's, it's in like two minutes, got to go there. And he said, yeah, 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 I'll be in there in a minute. So they went there. He never turned up. And after they finished their whole meal, they went back out. He still just sat there playing the guitar, uh, playing guitar, playing the piano. Um, so yeah, obviously quite keen on playing the piano. <laughs> I think Lois Maxwell uh, did go out there because they shot the, um, you know, the stuff where Bond turns up as a cowboy. Oh, All that God, stuff yeah. was shot in Venice. I didn't know that was in Venice. Yeah, it's not yeah. set in Venice. It's set in South America, but they oh. shot it in Venice. I completely forgot about him being a cowboy. Just yeah, <laughs> okay. What, so, what about the Magnificent Seven soundtrack? Is it yeah. Magnificent Seven? There's definitely a soundtrack when he's riding through. Good, the bad, there? and the ugly. I don't know. It's one of them. Um, so another interesting story about that as well is when they were filming that gondola scene, um, there was a problem because. Um, I think one of the assistant directors came over to Michael Wilson and said, there's there's someone going on here. There's a load of people with red armbands walking around. And they, Michael G. Wilson and Lewis Gilbert were looking around and they saw these young blokes with these red armbands and they were like, oh, Christ, what's going on here? What, there's, there's, there's something happening, there's something up. Um, but they spoke to this uh, guy from Venice and he, he laughed and he said, no, 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 they're not. They're not like trying to get you. Apparently they were like some sort of um, group that a completely innocent group. Apparently an auxiliary ice force. I'm not quite sure. What, I tried to look at what ice force was, but I'm assuming that's sort of some some sort of civil police service or something like that. Um, but yeah, so there was there was some more fears around that that shooting that um, caused problems. But uh, yeah, quite a hefty big filming section that Venice stuff. Yeah, interesting as well because Venice they've shot in Venice before and and they go back to Venice as well, don't they? Yeah, they're big fans of Venice. Yeah. Great place to film, though. It does look great. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to quickly talk about some of the space stuff. You mentioned the uh, the space station itself, talking about Ken Adam and how um, how he'd taken the design. He wanted uh, he wanted to do something a bit different to what had been done in 2001, A Space Oddity. He wasn't a big fan of that, and that's why he gives it this um, uh, sort of uh, asymmetrical look so that when it spins, uh, it looks different from all angles. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, they had this, they built the space station at Epinay, and when it came to blowing up the space station, and I, I've got another story about blowing up the space station a little bit later. But um, when they came to blowing up the main set, um, when when Drax is making his speech, there was um, Ken Adam talks about. It, he says that although it was a steel construction, I'd used a lot of plastic covering, so I told our practical effects man that we shouldn't use any of the petrol jelly because it was potentially very dangerous. He said he wouldn't. Lewis Gilbert didn't want to be on the stage, so he sat behind a monitor 100 metres away. And I, like a stupid man, stood at the edge of the stage. When the explosion happened, there was so much smoke from all the chemicals. And the whole thing started catching fire because the effects man must have used petrol jelly after all. We had six fire engines standing by, (laughs) but it still took them all night to put it out. Even the rafters of the stage were burning. Lewis was just pleased it was all over. Um, And obviously there was a lot of work to be done with wire work for um, when they were floating in zero gravity and also in space mm. because interestingly they shot the astronauts in paris but then they shot all the special effects stuff uh in the uk um so there was a lot a lot of wire work and the harnesses would be attached to the stunt people and where a harness attaches and where all the pressure goes is around the crotch and in, and the stunt people would just pass out from being <laughs> strung up for so long 
Um, obviously, famously, you've got a, um, a sex scene between Lois Max, uh, Lois Max, or Lois Childs and Roger Moore at the end of the film. Um, and Roger just said, it was highly uncomfortable, I can tell you. And he said, I, I was hanging there with all the blood rushing into my nose and my eyes. So although, it, you know, it's a fun, light-hearted moment, it was quite a brutal thing to shoot. Um, Lois, uh, Charles said it was hilarious, but uncomfortable to shoot that. So there you go. That's uh, attempting re-entry. Mm-hmm. Well, the discomfort continues for Roger, unfortunately. Uh, just as there were about to... Four million dollars. F- Oh, yeah, you've got to keep that in mind, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, as the unit, they flew out to Rio for the last bit of production um, and the plane was about to leave. Roger Moore was taken ill at the airport with kidney stones. Ah, oh, those kidney stones, they're rearing up again. So, yeah, the associate producer, William Cartledge, he he sent the flight off to Rio, but then he stayed in Paris Um to basically monitor Roger's condition. Um, And he said, while they're in the air, I actually sat down in Paris and worked out a new schedule where for five days they could shoot without Roger. So he went, uh, Roger's at the hospital. He gets the doctors telling him it's, it's, it's going to require 12 weeks of recovery, which they estimated would cost the production in the region of 15 to $20 million, which is incredible. Luckily enough, he recovered in four days and then he flew straight to Brazil on Concorde. So that shot you see of the Concorde flying and landing in the film, that is actually Roger's on that plane. And then when you see Roger getting off the plane, that's literally him having just landed. Um, nice. They didn't want to waste any more money. They didn't want to waste any more <laughs> like getting on. So basically the plane landed and they got hair and makeup up to run up, go on board, do his hair and makeup and then he got off and they filmed it. So, yeah, Jerry Giroux then told the press that Roger Moore had passed his kidney stone and Cubby Broccoli said, to think the future of my $30 million movie is hanging on a goddamn pebble. So, uh, yeah, Cubby wasn't best pleased. Uh, but all was fine. So then in Argentina, Igazu Falls, um, the second unit went off to shoot there um, and that's where they shot the speedboat uh, plummeting over the, the waterfall um, and that's where Bond <laughs> exits on the hang glider. So special effects supervisor John Richardson, um, he basically the, the boat got uh, stuck on the rocks near the edge of the waterfall and they had to remove it so that the crew could get some clear shots for back projection. And so he was dangled from a helicopter in order to try and sort of lift it. Um, but it obviously it weighed it weighed a ton. So, yeah. He said, he once I got hold of the boat, there was no way I was going to let go. So the helicopter is pulling and my arms are getting longer and longer by the second. And I suddenly hear ping, 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 ping. I thought, what on earth is that? I could hear it quite loudly over the noise of the helicopter and I suddenly realised it was the stitching on the harness I was wearing breaking. So basically he had to let go, otherwise he would have just been you know, thrown off off the waterfall. So the next day it rained and so the boat was sort of un- dislodged by itself. Um, but 
they got the actual fall itself completed in miniatures by Derek Meddings. Always saves the day, doesn't he, Meddings? He's always in there, isn't he? And, you know, everything goes wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that small. It's fine. Much cheaper as well. Let's just make Mm. all Bonds complete complete miniature. It's like Thunderbirds. Yeah. (laughs) Then you've got the exterior of Drax's uh, pyramid headquarters that was filmed at uh, Tikal Mayan ruins in Guatemala uh, but the interior and I was really critical actually watching this uh, this scene because that looks fake it looks rubbish but he did that on purpose he did it at a French studio and he put a shiny coating on it to make it look really plasticky and false so it was on purpose so that's fair enough so he said Hugo Drax has this hidden launch complex for the Moonraker rockets concealed behind the waterfalls in the Brazil-Argentine border. There was a control room in the shape of a pyramid with an adjoining great hall in the Mayan style. I partly based this on Mayan art in a contemporary setting. Um, so yeah, can can Adam get to have some fun with some different stuff? We've not seen Mayan stuff before, have we, in Bond? No, never seen it again, have we? Nope. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So, interestingly, I, I've been to most of the locations in Moonraker. I've been to Aguasu Falls. Mm. What's um, it like? It looks amazing it, on camera. Yeah, it's yeah, it's amazing, but it's tourist trap now. It wasn't back in the day. The reason mm. that the reason that could be chose it is because it was it, nobody had ever filmed there because it was a little. It's quite hard to get to it. You have to drive for about three hours to get there. Um, so, so then when they went to visit it, they saw it and they thought, "Wow, this is amazing. It's like untouched." I mean, it's not like that now. It's like Venice. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a fantastic place. It's one of the most beautiful waterfalls you can see because it's all, it's all waterfalls. It's not like Niagara where it's one waterfall. It's just everything mm. there is a waterfall. Um, and then there's, as well as filming in Iguazu, they also filmed in Rio, obviously, where they did the big cable car stunt. Again, a place I've been to. I've been in that cable car. Terrifying. I bet. Um not a fan of heights, but that one is 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 quite a tough one because it goes so high over the top of the uh, over the top of the ground, uh, which lays in quite nicely to the story. So while while they were there filming, um, they had a bit of a problem because obviously they have to get on top of the cable car, car and have a fight, um, but they they couldn't use Roger and they couldn't use um, uh, Keel for it because obviously they're the main actors. You're not going to put them on top of it, so they need a stuntman. They didn't have any stuntmen that were were as big as Keel. Um, so what they had to do is get a normal sized stuntman, and I, I can't, I'm not, I can't remember which one it was now. Um, so th- this guy he was the same size as as uh, just normal guy, and then they got Richard Graham, who's another stuntman, who's quite a lot shorter. So they got Richard Graham to play Roger, and then this other guy to play Richard Keel. So it looks like there's a short, there's a Roger Moore and a, and a taller guy. Um, Interesting when they Bill Cartledge, who was um, 
was he assistant producer associate producer at the time so associate um, producer yeah associate producer so he he was talking about how um he was trying to save a bit of cash so when they were doing the bits where like keel would be stood on top of it uh, he said he said to him oh it's easy, really easy really easy not not a problem i mean you just go out there and do it and um he's trying to get the trying to save some cash he didn't want to pay him the full amount so keel said oh well sure sure well i'll tell you what why don't you go up there and you, you go up and down a couple of times and come back and then I'll go and do it. So Cartilage uh, went to another look and he went, no, I'll pay the full price. Um, so yeah, so they got that done. But they had a lot of uh, problems on it as well because if you look at that scene, they couldn't have wires connected to them yes. when they were doing when they were walking around it because there's, there's already loads of wires and metal bits stuck out so you couldn't move around. So they, they had to do it free. They They, they couldn't have wires connected to them for safety around some of the top bits um and there's one stunt in it where they did mean to have a wire um so richard graham there's a bit where he falls off the side i think that's roger uh so roger falls off the side and he's sort of holding on to the cable car um but apparently richard graham was stood on there without wires because they were just filming the bit on top and gilbert shouts shout out somebody is he ready to do the shot and graham just just like what so is he, is he ready to do the shot? And Graham just went, oh, all right. And he just did it just because he's so polite and just thought, I better do it. Um, <laughs> and he's not actually got a wire on him. He's just stood there. And Gilbert was so surprised, he didn't shout uh. cut. So he's hanging up there longer than he needed to with Gilbert just staring at him. And then one of the other guys said, Lewis, tell him to stop it now and get back up there. Um, so that's an interesting... When, uh, when you know that and you see it happening, it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and I've been on it, and it is it is just terrifying being inside the cable car on that thing. Yeah, uh, and this would have been in the seventies, uh, so it probably wasn't as well made as when I did it. Uh, one other fact on that one: when Jaws bites into the uh, tramway cable with his teeth, that's licorice. I, so he, I, everyone says that, but I don't. I can't believe it. I'm sure that someone's made that trivia up. Well, because you see him bite into it, but. I, you don't really see it go through it just it cuts i can't i don't yeah. i don't believe that i'm calling bs on that i think that's space fiction any uh hmm. listeners who uh would like to dispute or uh, clarify that point please email in <laughs> space fiction so this is we're not in space anymore no but <laughs> we're about to go into space this is jungle fiction jungle fiction uh cable fiction um so, like, as I said, the visual effects were completed at Pinewood on the 007 stage. So Peter Lamont stayed in London to supervise the special effects unit that was directed by Derek Meddins. And it took over the 007 stage for 10 months from August 1978. Um, and Roger Moore was very happy about this because the Moonraker budget was being spent to rent out the stage. And the money that was being spent to rent out the stage was going back into the profits for The Spy Who Loved Me, which went back into his pockets. So he was very happy about that. Um, the stage, more than four million. Yeah, more than four million. And so the stage, obviously, we know it's the biggest one in the world. That had to be covered in sixty thousand dollars worth of black velvet, and all remaining surfaces were painted black to prevent scattered light because they were so supposed to be shooting in the darkness of space. The stage roof had to be reinforced to take all the weight from everything that was being suspended in the air from it. And as you've already touched upon, uh, they had to. Uh, creates new ways of shooting um, and, and, and the, the climax, the bit where all the people are zipping around in space 
required a single piece of film to be exposed 48 times um so it was just crazy which that is double that was 96 at times going through the camera um which is kind of crazy really and as i said that the special effects were made even more complicated by the um actors being shot in france so they had to then sync up so they were constantly in conversation between france and pinewood so as i mentioned the bit where drax's spaceship uh the space station actually explodes the way they did it was that they locked all the doors they brought in two shotguns and they basically walked around the model shooting it and filming it so when you watch it and you see it exploding you can see like it looks like it's being blasted with a gun and that's that's why um, but the special effects uh, took a long, long time, 10 months to do. Um, but NASA was so impressed uh, in the end, they actually asked to use some of the footage to make a TV advert for the space shuttle to reignite public interest in it. So as mentioned, uh, uh, it was an award-winning uh, or uh, an Oscar-nominated uh, set of visual effects that they made for the film. So um, yeah, actually lost out to Alien um, that year. And, and rightly so. I mean, the special effects in Alien are, are amazing. So, I mean, this was a massive production. It filmed over so many different countries. I think it was the biggest, by far the biggest one so far. Shooting on two, in two different, four different studios, I think, at one time. Different countries all around the world. It was, it was absolute madness. It was massive. Yeah, but there's, there's two ways you could look at that. So you look at, talk about something like Alien that does amazing effects really well. But it's so sort of honed in on mm. being great at what it does whereas this is trying to do so many different things and there's a lot in it and some of it looks great but you can have a hundred amazing looking things but if you throw them all together it can be a tricky thing to do oh yeah i mean i'm not saying more effects is better you're right i mean the stuff in alien is done it really well mm. and as yeah. we say with visual effects is less is is often more it's like you look at jurassic park and dinosaurs are only on screen for like 15 minutes yeah. The people always I'll, I'll hold off effects. my discussion points around Moonraker until the end. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> well, we, let's go into post-production. We'll just move the order around just slightly and I'll just jump straight into the music. So uh, John Barry returned to Bond for the Moonraker score. Um, and having done a lot of work now outside of Bond, it he sort of moves away from the Bond sound a little bit in, in Moonraker and goes for a more sort of lushly romantic laid back score, which is at times it's quite at odds with what's going on in the movie itself. Um, but I think it's one of his best, uh, one of his best scores. And there were great, huge, great plans for the Moonraker score, um, ambitious plans. Uh, he wanted to write an eight-movement symphonic work um, and record it with the Orchestra de Paris and release it as a double LP uh, with the movie. Um, I think Star Wars had done something similar. I'm going to hold my hands up. I'm not a big movie score guy, but uh, it sounds ambitious. And he wanted to record 75 minutes of music for the film. But in the end, uh, there was just 50 minutes of music recorded and only 44 minutes of that was John Barry's original music. And yes, it was the Magnificent Seven, Brendan, that they used. Ah, yeah. um, the boat chase when they are in South America is significant because it marks the last time that we hear John Barry's 007 theme in the entire series. Um, and it's slightly slowed down, slightly more austere than we've known it. And this is one of my favourite pieces of Bond music. Um, I bloody love the 007 theme, uh, John Barry's version of it anyway. Mm -hmm. 
so John Barry recorded the score in Paris and um, for some reason I've read that the original masters for the score have gone missing Mm. Um, uh, and hence why we've only got a, a truncated version of the score available now so according to John Burlingame's The Music of James Bond, John Barry was not happy with how the music was treated in the film. Uh, and he blamed Lewis Gilbert for failing to understand um, basically how to mix the, the, the music with the with the film. Um, and in, in July, around the release of the film, he told a reporter, I'm very disappointed with the dub of Moonraker. It was done in London where I couldn't be in attendance. For some odd reason, Lewis Gilbert decided to play it monaural. And if you compare the dub of the picture with the soundtrack album and match the quality of the album against that of the film, there's at least a 50% differential in terms of impact. When this occurs, one feels almost violated as if you've been robbed. Personally, I believe Lewis Gilbert's ears were out to lunch when he made that dub, Um, Mm. which is quite a scolding (laughs) assessment, really. Um, Mm. So, yeah... That's it. Um, John Barry's uh, not happy with the way his music was used here. So happiness around music for Moonraker doesn't end there because um, the soundtrack to the main song for Moonraker was the third time that Shirley Bassey had done uh, a song for Bond, Um, which you may think just hearing that you'd go, oh, brilliant. That's tried and tested uh, singer doing a, a, a... a new song for a series that she's loved doing in the past. Obviously, Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever were massive hits. Um, Moonraker, not so much. Um, and there's a, one of the main reasons for that is that she wasn't originally the, the person they picked to do it. Um, Frank Sinatra was in the running for it. He was considered for the vocals. Um, didn't do it, obviously. Kate Bush was asked as well, but she declined. Johnny Mathis was approached, and I think he got... I believe he got some way through the project before being unable to, com- to complete it. So after all of that, they they sort of picked Bassey um, very late in the day, uh, um, just weeks before the premiere date. So it was a bit of a rushed rushed job to get her in to get her in to do it. And as a result, um, she just didn't have a lot of sort of interest in it. Apparently. Um, Obviously, when a, a big artist sings a song for a Bond film or any film, um, they're they're a big part of the promotional tool for it. So you look at sort of Billie Eilish or anyone like that 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 they 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 help promote the film. They're 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 in it to to promote the whole thing as well. They need to be invested. She wasn't really in it. Sorry, they need to be invested in it, don't they? Yeah, they need to be invested. They're 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 a big marketing power. So it's fine with it. But because Bassie came in at a late late uh, late point, she didn't feel like the song was hers. Um, she didn't really feel like she was that interested in it. She wasn't invested in it, so she didn't really promote it either. So it just sort of fell a bit flat and didn't really get any support from her. Um, yeah, there and also there was a bit of confusion as well because there were two versions of the title song. There's a ballad version, um, which you hear over the main title sequence, and then there's a disco version, which you get the closing titles. But um, I believe when it was released, there was some confusion about which was which. So it, it made the whole scenario even more difficult for the audi- audiences to buy into it because they didn't really know what it was or hadn't really seen any real marketing around this song. I think it's it's just a bit of a n- nothingy song, really. It sounds all right, but it's not got the sort of oomph of uh, Goldfinger and Diamonds for Forever, and it doesn't really have any sort of drama to it either. It's just a little bit of a, um, you know, um, rambling melody that 
just feels fine but doesn't really add anything to it yeah and the knock-on effect of that of you know it's quite quite slowed down um the knock-on effect where morris binder's work on the titles um because it's slower than what he's normally used to he had um problems trying to get the models um the nude models you know you you want to make it so you can't see you know enough otherwise the sensors will cut it Mm. um so he basically said when they start printing those prints there's no stopping it it's like a newspaper press and then if the sensor says you've got to take that booby out or cover up that behind it's big trouble so i'm very careful on moonraker i was more careful than was on some of the previous pictures um and uh yeah because he had to be more careful it took longer and um it actually meant that they were cutting the titles in for the premiere at the theatre. Mm. Like, really, wow. really last minute. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, you can see how it, it, it makes an effect. And, you know, the the soundtrack itself, I think it's, uh, it is the standout thing in this. Um, but with John Barry going a bit slower across the board, it does have a knock-on effect. It's quite interesting how it does affect other things, really. Yeah. Well, what they want to do is just get an artist that has a back catalogue of songs and just picks one from it and just, just gives it to you. Yeah. Like Madonna. That'll save you a bit of time. <laughs> oh, dear. So, they had the posters. Um, I'm sure this is one of the most iconic posters. You can picture it straight away, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, there's... A lot going on. There's, yeah, well, there's one, there's one that's, uh, I think it's the teaser poster, um, where it's just Bond, and he's he's in a spacesuit in a tuxedo, and he's just like oh, zo- yeah, yeah. zooming up, yeah, and the tagline to that is outer space, outer space now belongs to 007, um, and he's not wearing a helmet in that either, so he would, he's, <laughs> yeah, he would explode, um, and then the other one, which. As the tagline, where all the other Bonds end, this one begins. And like you say, there's a lot going on here. You've got Bond in his space suit, surrounded by the... Uh, what what are, what are Drax's women called? Do they have a name? I don't know if they do. I think they did. Do they? Well, they're, they're on the poster. And then you've got Jaws behind him. I mean, yeah, in, in its colours. There's a lot of Star Wars-style colours and shapes and patterns going on in this one. According to the wiki, it's Drax's girls. <laughs> okay, oh, Dra- okay, Drax's Simple. girls. There you go. But yeah. the, the floating um, jaws behind this is quite a funny touch, isn't it, on the poster? Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> but apparently the there was already a lot of budget behind this film. It was the biggest, it was the most expensive Bond film up, up to this up to this point. Um, so I think the original, but you're going to have to help me out on this because you probably know more than me about this budget because we spoke about it earlier. But what did you say, 15 million it was original bu- budget? Did I for? think they were looking at something like that. Let's have a look. They were, um, yeah, I think there was discussion um, that it was originally going to cost 15 million. And then mm. when they did the drafts, it was coming in at 20 million. And then yeah. that was like negotiated down with United Artists. Um yeah. But in the end, um, when they uh, finally came down to do a, a final budget, they uh, they looked at it and they said it was going to cost thirty two million dollars. 
Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen a few numbers that sit around the thirties, between about thirty-one and thirty-five. So yeah, yeah, definitely quite a big jump, especially when it's far more expensive than Spy Who Loved Me as well. I read that they also they'd included a line which was two million dollars for some sort of location expenses, and they were like, "What? Amazing. What's that for?" And basically, it was for paying bribes to close down streets. <laughs> wow! So incredible. Shoot, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people incredible. involved were just like, you know. Well, now you know why If Your Eyes Only didn't cost much money. Yeah. Well, we talked about that, didn't we? I think it was the over... Because this one cost so much money, they had to really mm. dial things back in, didn't they? Shame. Isn't it Lewis Gilbert said that he could have made Dr. No on the uh, telephone bill of this, this yeah. thing alone? I think yeah. it cost something like this. It combined, you could have made the first seven movies or the first eight mm. or nine movies with the same amount of money they spent on this one movie. Incredible. Yeah, unbelievable. Wow. We'll talk about that in a bit. Right, let's release the film. Let's launch Moonraker. It premiered at the Odeon Leicester Square in June 1979. And Roger Moore had a beard and he hosted a one hour TV special for ITV. He had a beard because he was making North Sea Hijack. Um, at the premiere, you should see the picture of this. It's absolutely brilliant. There was a uh, transit van with a model space shuttle on the back of it being driven around Leicester Square. And there was a couple of people in these tacky sort of silver spacesuits walking around with it as well. It looks very, very low budget. Um, But uh, Prince Philip was there and he met with the cast and the crew. And as we mentioned before, the the release was originally supposed to coincide with the launch of of the space shuttle in Houston. And they were going to hold a premiere at Houston uh, at the same time as the the rocket uh, the shuttle launch but that never happened so um yeah that's why we ended up having it at Leicester Square there was an after party held at the Playboy Club in London with the bunny girls dressed as in spacesuits as well there was a Playboy Club in London yeah yeah interesting and um and Finally, yeah, just to say about the launch, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, they held a big event for Moonraker in in celebration of the Bond films. It was a week-long event that included screenings of documentaries, of You Only Live Twice, of The Spy Who Loved Me, and that had a QA, and a listen to this, with Cubby, Ken Adam and Lewis Gilbert. Imagine being at that. And then they also hosted an evening with Morris Binder where he showed footage from his pre-title sequences. So I imagine there was a lot of naked women uh, on show that night. Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. So, what did the critics think, Brendan? So, on so just start off with uh, Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. That's uh, got a fifty nine percent approval rating. Ooh, so that's technically uh, rotten. Uh, it's very rotten. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite quite a bit below the threshold. Yeah, uh, and then six point two out of ten on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the reviews at the time. So New York Times said. Moonraker is one of the most buoyant Bond films of all. Almost everyone connected with the movie is in top form, even Mr. Moore. He, huh. he, here, he's as ageless, resourceful, <laughs> and and graceful as the character he inhabits. Now we know where that £2 million of bribes went. <laughs> uh, the Globe and Mail critic Jay Scott said Moonraker was second only to Goldfinger. In the first... <laughs> In wow. the first few minutes before the credits, Incredible. it offers more thrills than most escapist movies provide in two hours. During the title sequence, the excitement has gone all the way up to giddy and never comes down. Frank Rich, Frank Rich of Time 
felt the result is a film that is irresistibly entertaining as only truly mindless spectacle can be. Those who have held out on Bond movies over 17 years may not be convinced by Moonraker, but everyone else will be. Film critics are morons, aren't they? (laughs) Take Uh, note, Butler. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune took a critical view, though, so that's what we want, isn't it? Yes. Uh, It said, in the beginning of the Bond series, there were... Before they were thought of as a series, each film was a good action picture with a colourful, entertaining hero. Today, they come off as a conglomerate business enterprise rather than movies. How else does one explain the intrusive commercial plugs in Moonraker for Christian Dior, British Airways, Bollinger Champagne, Glaston Boats and Seiko Watches? Truly, money derived from these plugs can't be worth the loss of story continuity when the products are flashed in front of the camera. He's also missed out seven up there, which is oh, glaring. Um, Roger Ebert, though. Here we go. Come on. Voice of reason. Sense. Come on. It's so jammed with faraway places and science fiction special effects that Bond has to move at a trot just to make it to all the scenes. A film critic called Danny Peary wrote, The worst James Bond film to date has Roger Moore walking through the paces for his hefty paycheck and giving way to his double for a series of unimaginative action scenes with humorous chases. There's little suspense and the humour falls flat. Not only is Jaws so pacified by love that he becomes a good guy, but the filmmakers also have the gall to set the finale in outer space and stage a battle right out of Star Wars. And if you don't want to take his word for it, Right, people listening. What about Sean Connery? I went to London to see Moonraker with Roger and I think it's departed so much from any sort of credence from the reality that we had. And he also he said that the film had such a dependence on the effects and there's no substance. So there you go, final word. Sean Connery says it's crap. There we go. You've been, you've been desperate to get that one out, haven't you? I have, yeah. <laughs> Well, despite, well, actually from some of the critics there, it's not surprising that it did well. Um, it had uh, a massive opening weekend. It grossed 14.7 million in its first week um, and then went on to total 210.3 million worldwide, making it the highest gross, uh, making it United Artists' highest grossing film of all time. Uh, beyond that of the spiral of me previously, so did pretty well. Indeed, it did. In terms of awards, we've mentioned it was a, a nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, losing out to Alien. Um, but the film was actually also nominated for three Saturn Awards: Best Science Fiction Film, Best Special Effects, and Best Supporting Actor for Richard Keel. Um, so that's interesting. I don't think it won any of them though. Right, Brendan, we've heard what you think. Uh, no, what... no, 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 no. You've heard what Sean Connery thinks. Sorry, you heard what Sean Connery thinks. Yes. How Sean Connery reinforced what you thought of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did our listeners have to say? Right, so remarkably, right, when the tweet was put out, yeah, that we do this normally, this has this easily got the most interaction. We've got 55 comments wow. on this. So I can't read them all out. But uh, there are some good ones in there. So please, um, you're going to give a very yeah, give a very. Please have some variety, Brendan. There will be some very. Don't worry. I've, I'm yeah. going to be impartial. We like the BBC here. Okay. So, Paul Cunningham, Cunningham said 007's true epic. Interesting. Yeah. Chris Rogers put ah a woman, and I only put that in there because I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a quote again. Keep yeah. going. 
Um, uh, Ms. Bosley Pearson on Twitter. And this one is good because it's got a bit of thought to it. Goodbye, Ian Fleming. Oh. Oh. Yes. Zach Goldberg said, pigeon double take. And again, <laughs> I thought that as well, because that the pigeon is basically reviewing the film, isn't it? Yeah, that's that one works, I think. That's not just reference the films, because yeah. that does su- sum up Moonraker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the rock and roll guy put my favourite Bond. There you go. Okay. So there we go. Um, double O Nothing put Out of This World. Again, that's quite clever. Out of this. Is it Outer? Outer. Outer. outer, outer, right, outer okay, this world. Yeah, don't worry. It, it, it passes the three I, I, the I'm three a bit of a stickler rule. for getting these <laughs> just three words here. I'm checking you on every one of them. Uh, Jane Hatch put Bond Spectacular Adventure. Uh, where do, where do you okay. fall on spectacular as being a word? Are we, are we allowing that? Space fact. Well, I, don't, I, I don't know what it means anyway. Is that good or bad? It's space fact. Depends, depends if you like space, doesn't it? I hate space. Uh, Nicola Yatsaba put Bring Back Connery. Whoa, scathing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Daddy O. Friend of the show. More, more, more magic. So that's more with one O, more, two O's, magic. More, more magic. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you'll like Darren Leithley's one. Lack of yeah. gravity. That, that's good because that works that two works, ways. doesn't it? At least yes, two ways. It's a, yeah, it's a dub- yeah, it's very clever. Yeah, double meaning. Yeah. That's nice. That's what we want from these three-word reviews. Really use that, them to the that full. That is, yeah. Like Nikolai Quacks put ridiculous but quality. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Uh, but my favourite one is from Andrew Mullins. Just bloody awful. Well, well we there want. you go. Again, yeah. belying your true feelings for this film. I liked uh, <laughs> Lee, uh, watched it last night. He said, Dolly needs braces. Yes. Oh, his, his his copy hasn't got braces either. Yeah, mine hasn't. Yeah. No. Still not a review, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Right. All right. Now let's, we, let's, hit, let's hit it hard. The legacy and reputation of the film. Let's not let BJ answer this first, because I think... I don't need to say anything, an hour and a half I? now. This yeah. is going to go on until three hours if, if we yeah. let BJ talk well, let, straight let, away. Let me, go in, let me come in first. So this is a... Um, <laughs> this is the one that um that that jumped the shark right they they were the films were on a trajectory of sorts and this is the one where james bond jumps the shark it's the one everyone remembers that they sent james bond into space they say it's science fact it's science fiction mm-hmm. and it's silly you can't you can't just send any old man into space you can't mm. that's just true but um the, the, another problem with the film is that it spends so long and it has such a convoluted story to it getting you there to space that um yeah there's just it's almost like i said right at the top of the show kobe throws throws everything at this movie mm-hmm. including the kitchen sink and some cowboys and uh it's, yeah but it's like it's a movie made by a marketing team they're throwing buzzwords and trends that they think are going to work all together he's like even when he went to like iguatu falls he was like we've got to film here you've already got space and stuff in this you don't have to film here Mm. but they just went all out at it and just said if we just do all these things it's going to be the biggest best bond ever um but i think it's a mistake it followed the trajectory set by uh the spy love me which was the biggest and boldest bond yet right and so they thought you know well let's let's one up it but unfortunately 
uh, I do think you lose a you, you lose something in that in that it gets kind of silly. And I thought you know look, you only live twice was was getting a bit daft, but um, this just takes it onto another level. All that being said, though, I do find this film really entertaining. Um, but mm. uh, in terms of it being, you know. Anywhere near Fleming, it's a million miles from Fleming. I mean, the closest you get is the, the probably the stuff with the centrifuge. I think Drax is 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 solidly um, malevolent, um, a bit different to what we have in the book. But uh, I, yeah. I I don't mind it for its excesses. But uh, I feel like I'm in I'm in the minority here uh, with you two anyway. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to jump in here before Brendan does because I can see his face on the screen and he's he's desperate to burst. Um, so if I if I let him speak first, I'm never going to get a word in Edgeways. Um, I classify Moonraker as the dying of the day. Roger Moore's dying of the day. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's gone too far, but it is important in the Bond series because they realised that if they hadn't realised that and they'd carried on, it might have been the death of Bond. Yeah. But they they made the mistakes. They went too far and they've gone right. We've got to pull it back. So it was an important learning curve for them. Same as dying of the day. If dying of the day hadn't gone too far, they might have. That carried on that path at a bit slower rate uh we wouldn't have got casino royale so I, I i'm with brendan i think it's a ridiculous film and i i, I we've talked about this earlier butler where when we i saw it review a, a while ago i quite enjoyed it but i think i was viewing that then as sort of a fun film we'd had a few beers it's enjoyable but when you're viewing it as an actual part of the bond series and it's in relation to the other bond films it is there's a lot of problems with it and it's a very difficult one to watch if you're actually sitting there going, is this written well? Is the Are these scenes good? Is there a good narrative to this? Um, and the space bit is just... Basically, I just want to say to... If I saw Cup at the time, I was like, if you're going to do space, you've got to do it well. And you're not doing space well. You're doing space badly. It it just doesn't work. It's it's like a pantomime in space, isn't it? And um, yeah, it just doesn't, just doesn't come off very well. All the way down to like the stupid yellow spacesuits. <laughs> that look like tracksuits. Um, right, I'm done, Brendan. What do you think to Moonraker, Brendan? I mean, it's an absolute abomination. It's, <laughs> I think it's it's awful and it's got one redeeming feature probably and that's the soundtrack. Um, it's, it, it's a film that doesn't know what it wants to be. It's three, maybe four films crowbarred into one. They don't earn going to space at all. You know, if they'd have been clever about it, you could probably have got Bond onto a space station somehow if you really thought about it. But they don't. It's just like, oh, yeah, this, this, he's got to go to space. Star Wars is popular. It's it's nonsense. And um, the 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 Jaws character, they just sort of throw that out the window, don't they? Like, oh, yeah. If they'd got rid, if they'd got rid of Jaws in this film it might have been a bit better because that just turns it into a comedy every time he's on mm. set it's like to carry on it's like yeah. someone from carry on film has walked on and is doing a, a skit the yeah. um the scene at the airport there's no need for that or he gets beeped yeah like why <laughs> there's yeah. no need yeah, yeah. for it it's, to be it's there. a shame because you know that keel keel wasn't very keen on it was he no. he, he uh, and 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 he was so good in the inspire you love me there's a couple of bits where that aren't as good but to turn him from being a really scary... I used to give kids nightmares, like my parents used to tell me, that Jaws was scary. Mm. Not in Moonraker. He's ridiculous. He's like Bungle yeah. from <laughs> Rainbow. There, no, no disrespect to Richard Keel because obviously he uh, 
he does a great job uh, in Spy Love Me. But there is a moment where, you know, where he pulls Bond out of the water. Yeah. And then they have to follow Drax. There's a really strange moment where Jaws walks across the screen. And you know how you always say, you know, about Connery walking like a panther. He walks like a teddy bear. It's bizarre. It, this is walk across the screen. It is very, um, it's very comical <laughs> yeah. the way he but does it's, it. It's like something as simple as that. In the spiral of me, they wouldn't have let that happen. They would have, they would have seen that and gone, "No, he's scary. He's got to. He can't walk like that. He's got to scary." In this, they were like, "Just do what you want. Just do what you want. Just, just, yeah, just be funny, mate." And it just doesn't work because he's not a comedy character in it. it but he's play, he's made, he's forced to do comedy bits, and it just doesn't pay off. Yeah, because his his best scene in this film is when he's dressed as a clown. I mean, that's the only bit where he comes across as menacing. Yeah, you know, the way yeah, he's sort of a, stumbling in that clown costume. I'd I'd say Jaws and his relationship storyline are is the biggest clanger in apart from space, but it's the biggest clanger in it. If they'd removed that, it might have like retained a little bit of respectability. But that really does pull it down every time it well, happens. And also, and I, and I cannot abide by this. The Bondola scene, if you want to call it that, yeah, is absolutely ridiculous. And does yeah. not belong in a Bond film. It belongs in, in, a, in a Johnny English film or an Austin Powers film. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's pure nonsense. Where's your sense of fun? Um, no, yeah. no, it's no. Don't like... paint me as being... No, it's not about fun. You look it's, at, it's too far. You look at the old Bond films, the things serve a purpose. So Little Nelly is useful. Mm. It's good. It, 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 yeah. it, there's a reason why he's got that. The Aston Martin, it's good. It's useful. There's a reason why he's got it. This, this, this stupid gondola he's got is the most useless contraption that they must have spent Q must have spent ages <laughs> developing off the off chance that they were going to be in Venice one day it just doesn't mean anything like the, the jetpack and stuff like you could you could spend years making that because they will be useful at certain points mm. a bondola is never going to be useful yeah. unless you need to chase somebody in Venice yeah I don't know what I don't know why he why is that his method of transport through Venice anyway look he, he gets in it and it's like really leisurely it's like no, yeah. if you want to go somewhere fast, you're not going like that, are you? And the yeah, whole motorbike, the whole lot, yeah, exactly. They should have kept the motorbike in, but the yeah. the nonsense with the uh, the the guy in the coffin that that. But I mean, it's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but, why? Yeah. And why does the guy on the bridge who sees him flick his cigarette, goes and flicks his cigarette? <laughs> in? It's just stupid. Is, is there an equivalent vehicle in another Bond film which is that useless? I can't think of one that's that useless that's designed to do that what it's meant to do. Well, the Bond, I mean, the Bond, I, I think the Bond boat in <laughs> The World Is Not Enough is um, is similarly what single use. Because this doesn't Bond, doesn't Q say it's for his fishing? It's his retirement boat for fishing, yeah. and yeah. But it's still just a good boat, isn't it? You can still, you, you can take it anywhere and use it. And it's fast. You, I guess you could. Yeah, it's just a good boat. Yeah. The gondola, the, the bondola is of no use. And like, what if they accidentally didn't go to Venice? They went to, I don't know, uh, Berlin. I've got this gondola. What? I can't use that here. It's you can. It goes Berlin. on roads. <laughs> they have gondolas on it. Yeah, go to use a car. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. That's uh, that's the gondola. And you haven't mentioned the um, uh, the the hang gliding off the top of the waterfall either. Well, With a cigar. <laughs> when I was mentioning that the other day. I was watching it. I was put it in the in our group chat, and uh, it, it's it's got the all the energy of the CGI. Uh, surfing on in Dino the Day, isn't it? 
So mm. you mentioned Die Another Day there. So what 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 is it that you can't abide with this where you'll give Die Another Day a bit of slack? Because I know when we Piers talk... Brosnan. It's, it's Piers Brosnan, isn't it? <laughs> well, um, Piers no, Brosnan no. Did, did Moonraker, he'd love it. I'll, ta- I'll tell you what it is. It's the first hour of Die Another Day is actually pretty decent. Right. Um, And then it does go to nonsense. But also, he doesn't go in space. Is that enough? Yeah, that's true. If, if he had gone to space and died another day, it would have... I'd, yeah, I'd burn it. Yeah, but he doesn't go to space, you know? Yeah. At least they had a level of <laughs> respect for themselves to not go that far. Because I bet there was a conversation when they were talking about dying another day where they went, should we send him to space? <laughs> no, I think, no, I think we've done enough. Stick with the invisible car in the ice palace. Yeah. They can't ever go into space now, can they? Through, of course after this not. Movie. Um, no, no. Um, interesting. Fast and I mean, Furious did it. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you look at generally at like rankings of James Bond films, Moonraker generally generally features pretty low in the rankings. It does have fans. It does have people appreciate it. And I would say it's a two or three beer Bond movie. You know, like if you were... Special brew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something very, very strong. I think you can you can enjoy it and it is an enjoyable film, but for you, Brendan, it's just uh, it's just too much. Look, and I, 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 and I do wanna I do wanna just put a disclaimer here that I this is not me poo pooing on the the people that put lots of hard work on this film. But for me, viewing the film, there's nothing in it for me to enjoy. It's a kids' film. It's a kids' film. It's yeah. it's a fun kids' film. That if if you put it in front of well we I watched it when I was a kid and I enjoyed it loved it when I was a kid and yet this is the sort of thing that people want when they reboot Bond <laughs> something fun not this far yeah there's no. there's levels isn't there there's there's fun <laughs> and there's going into there's an old man going into space <laughs> for no reason with stupid lasers the lasers are funny aren't they? I don't like the sound effects of the lasers and there's that bit where they're in Q's lab and it's melting that man's head and it takes forever to melt doesn't it. Worst yeah. weapon in the world. Well, my <laughs> issue as well. Why is Q taking so many gadgets over? Like, think about that. He's he's decided to take all his his backroom staff over there as well to test more. Yeah, gadgets. He's got to be ready for it if something happens in Venice on the off chance. <sighs> well, shall I reveal the rankings of the film? Because yeah. um, so since we did our our reshuffle in the mailbag episode, um, I've decided to implement a new way of doing the rankings so that we're not arguing about it on the podcast. Uh, you guys have submitted your rankings, um, and I, I add where I think Moonraker to come, and then I um, uh, do an average of the three. So do you want to hear where it landed? Mm-hmm. Damn straight, desperate. So we have covered 13 now of the James Bond films. We're over halfway through the James Bond films. How excited is that? (laughs) Very. Well, it was a long way to go, but yeah, carry on. So still at number one on our rankings is Goldfinger. Followed by From Russia With Love, GoldenEye, Casino Royale, Dr. No, Live and Let Die, License to Kill, For Your Eyes Only, a view to a kill. We're getting low down in the rankings now. Followed by Moonraker. Mm. Then Diamonds Are Friends Forever. <laughs> Die Another Day. And Casino Royale 67 is ranked bottom still. So that is a new entry in at number 10 is Moonraker. So I rated it higher than you two did, basically. So Brendan, you've bumped it up, basically. You've put it at number one, haven't you? And it's bumped no, it up. No, 
No, I've put it at number eight in my rankings, and I'll tell you for why. Because I think I would rather watch Moonraker over For Your Eyes Only and A View to a Kill and Die Another Day and Diamonds Are Forever and Casino. I, I, I thought I thought we'd reassess the way we were we were judging this now. Yeah, well, well, the fact that we can now average them out, I think, okay, fine. lets us each d- define how we want to rank them. I think. Uh, I'm happy with that. I think, I think that's where I, didn't I put it in? You just above. Yeah, you put yours in. You put it at ten, and um, mm. you put your you put Moonraker below a view to a kill, and Brendan, you put it second from bottom mm. above uh, only Casino Royale sixty seven. Yeah, yeah, sounds right to me. So uh, yeah, that is the that is the rankings now. I'll update our letterboxed list so you can uh, keep an eye on that. But yeah, Moonraker, the tenth best Bond film at the halfway point. Interesting. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it sound like it's, it's a top ten, isn't it? Oh, I think it will remain bottom five, 10. to be honest. Um, mm, yeah. But we have still got a I'm few still, stinkers. I'm still glad Die Another Day is below it. Yeah, Die Another Day is below it, and so is Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, anyway, that's the completely um, pointless and irrelevant rankings of the James Bond Eight Said podcast and where Moonraker comes. So that was an epic episode for an epic movie. Um, our next episode, we are venturing into the letter N, finally. Um, mm. There's only going to be, I think, three entries in N. So the letter N, and then we've got uh, Never Say Never Again and No Time to Die. So a couple of uh, few interesting episodes in there to look forward to um, as we move towards the letter Z, slowly but surely. Um, and so if people want to email the show, how do they get hold of us? Podcast jamesbond a to z dot co dot uk, and if you want to get us on social media, at jamesbond a to z on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as you know from our advert in the middle of the podcast, we have a coffee page. And thanks to everyone who has sent us a coffee so far, we really appreciate it. We haven't spent a single penny of it yet. We're going to save up and buy a trip to space uh, for Brendan um, oh, with all the money <laughs> for his <laughs> for his. I need four million four million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. And also, if you want to buy a T-shirt to support the show, we've got a, 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 a website that will be in the show links where you can buy, um, yeah, T-shirts with the alphabet alphabetic letters on them. Um, so, uh, without further ado, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond Eight Z podcast will return next week. Adios. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Good afternoon. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.